Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air as we review the July 2022 Volume 118 print journal edition of Fertility and Sterility. As always, I'm welcome, joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Eve Feinberg and Dr. Kurt Barnhart. Kurt and Eve, how are you guys? I'm great. Happy, uh, happy summer, everyone. Thank you, Pietro. Nice to see you back on the podcast, so to speak. Nice to have COVID behind me. I understand that both Eve and I both uh, were recovering, but one of us had a little bit stronger voice and was able to make it. So I'm glad to be back. As always, our thoughts are always with Micah Hill, who's been uh, away from the podcast for a little bit, but will be back with us in in due time. We want to start off by um, acknowledging the reviewers of the year for 2021. Uh, Fertility and Sterility reviews just so many manuscripts and only a fraction of them make it into the journal. I know, Kurt, you wanted to share a few thoughts about um, what makes these star reviewers stars? Thank you, Pietro. The first thing I want to acknowledge is that we really do want to acknowledge our reviewers. Um, we wouldn't be able to have the quality of fertility and sterility without our outstanding reviewers. And I recognize and all of us recognize the time and energy that's put into these reviews. And it sometimes feels like a thankless job. So I wanted to formally state that our journal goes through a relatively strict process to find out who the best reviewers of the year are. Um, and we run, we want to acknowledge those people. They do a lot of work and um, it should be publicly screamed from the mountaintops. So I want to publicly, as well as in the print, acknowledge Ken Ashton, Mindy Christensen, Taylor Kahn, and Judy Stern as our reviewers of the year. Please take a look at, at the journal because in the journal, we actually not only acknowledge them, but we ask them a few questions, which I think are pertinent to everybody. We ask them, how does peer review for the journal benefit your career? And universally, those are positive comments. Reviewing is extremely beneficial, keeps people up to date, is a real benefit to someone's career. And people are, at least these reviewers, are grateful that they have the opportunity. We also ask them how um, this practice helps them in their career. And again, it's universally positive in terms of how it may impact their clinical practice or the methodological um, understanding and how they write papers. It's clearly a two-way street. And these four people exemplify how not only does a good review help themselves, but it helps the authors who are publishing infertility and sterility. So again, thank you very much, Dr. Ashton. Christensen, Cohn, and Stern, um, and I hope everybody will follow after them, and I'll be mentioning your name in about a year. Thanks, Kurt. Now, let's jump into our first peer-reviewed paper of this month. Eve, you have the seminal contribution. I do. Uh, Thank you. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our loyal listener, Jackie Lee. Um, Jackie, it was great to see you at residency graduation this past weekend, and thank you for always listening to our podcast. Moving on to this article, the title of this article is IVF Preimplantation Genetic Testing for Monogenetic Disease versus Unassisted Conception with Prenatal Diagnosis for Huntington's Disease, a Cost-Effective Analysis. And this is by Alicia Christensen with senior author Sasha Craig from Oregon Health and Science University. This is a great paper. It was a cost-effectiveness analysis of a theoretical cohort of 3,851 couples where one individual is a known carrier of Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is an autosomal dominant disorder and has a penetrance of 100%, meaning if you carry the gene, you will get the disease. HD is a neurodegenerative disease that is characterized by involuntary choreiform movements, cognitive impairment, dementia, psychiatric behavioral disturbances, sleep dysfunction, and autonomic dysfunction. The disease progresses to early death. Onset of symptoms is around age 40, and patients on average will live 24 years after diagnosis. In other words, it's devastating. 
The baseline model that these authors compared were two conception strategies. The first strategy was IVF with PGTM, and the second was medically unassisted conception. In the unassisted conception arm, the couple had the option to undergo amnio and the option to terminate the pregnancy if amnio resulted as positive for HD. Given that PGTM is not 100%, the authors also included the option for amnio with subsequent termination in the PGTM arm. The authors used an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, or ICER, which is the difference in costs divided by the quality-adjusted life years. They used a willingness-to-pay threshold of $100,000, which is pretty standard for most cost-effectiveness analyses. Life expectancies were calculated using WHO data, and various health states were assigned weighted utility that represents quality of life during each time period. Costs were derived from the literature and calculated for each strategy, and they were adjusted to 2020 U.S. dollars. So cost of living with both early and late onset Huntington's was taken from a published paper that details costs from symptoms until death. Cost of IVF PGTM was calculated using a weighted average according to the number of cycles needed and required to achieve a live birth compared to unassisted conception. And they took the assumption that a fertile couple has an 87% chance of live birth without medical assistance. I think all of these are quite reasonable assumptions. All model inputs were interrogated with sensitivity analysis to determine which inputs were most influential to model outcome. And a Monte Carlo stimulation was Monte Carlo simulation was used to determine the proportion of instances where IVF PGTM was most cost effective. And the results were presented as a cost versus effectiveness scatter plot with a 95% confidence ellipse with the proportion of time IVF PGTM was cost effective in the setting of uncertainty. What they showed was that IVF PGTM was cost effective versus unassisted conception. And here are the details. IVF PGTM was associated with 77 more quality adjusted life years and an overall cost savings of $46 million. When they broke this down and they looked at it per couple, this translates to a $12,000 cost savings and an additional 0.02 quality adjusted life years per couple. In other words, it is lower in cost and higher in effectiveness when compared to unassisted conception in those who are known carriers for Huntington's disease. And again, I want to commend the authors on a fantastic paper. This lends a lot of weight to the argument for PGTM for Huntington's. My only criticism is that my real-world experience as an REI who's been out of fellowship for 15 years and who has taken care of numerous Huntington's families has taught me that many affected families, in fact, every family that I've cared for to date, they don't actually want to know if they're disease carriers. The norm for these families is something called non-disclosure PGT, which allows for PGT to be performed without actually testing for Huntington's disease. My most recent couple I cared for had an affected paternal grandfather. The patient's dad was in his late 50s and had not yet shown symptoms, but disease onset can be in the early 60s. And so non-disclosure PGT uses familial linkage analysis to identify the flanking markers surrounding the Huntington's gene on chromosome four, but it doesn't actually test whether the father or the embryo carries the disease. The authors allude to this in the discussion section, and I would love for them to publish a second paper looking at cost effectiveness of PGT for all with a family of history of Huntington's disease, as I think this may be a more realistic portrayal of what actually happens but I still think that this is a phenomenal first step and a really compelling argument to do PGTM for couples with Huntington's disease. Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? Yeah, I was pleased to select this as the seminal contribution, knowing that there's some limitations as you just described. Objectively and scientifically, this is a well done paper, but it's confined to certain assumptions and ultimately cost. So, um, but there's a lot more to cost to this subject, and which is why I wanted to bring it up for discussion. It's not simply just dollars and cents, as this paper ultimately breaks it down to. Now, yes, it's one of the first papers to show it's cost effective, but there are many other things that need to be factored in such decisions other than simply cost. 
I love it whenever we have a paper that highlights another use for IVF and IVF as a risk reducing tool, I think is just the best. PGTM is one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal for risk reduction. But unfortunately, I think when we're talking about these single gene disorders and particularly in the late press, we're really focusing on gene therapy to treat individuals already affected by some of these diseases that PGTM can help us avoid outright. PGTM is primary prevention. Um, way before we even have to talk about treatment, and treatment we know is a multi-million dollar proposal. So I would love to see more work being done in the PGTM space to couple these gene therapies that are expensive to treat individuals with disease, but also increase access and coverage for these individuals who now have a chance at a full healthy life to also have a chance at reproducing and avoiding passing that disorder onto the next generation using PGTM. That to me would really be primary prevention and treatment coupled together and using the best of what IVF has to offer. You know, and, you know, and regardless of the, your political leanings on this, and I know at a time when we're debating Roe versus Wade, let's just look at the technology here. You know, you may or may not choose this technology, that, that's your own personal prerogative, but we are now talking about eliminating a gene, not just simply testing it after a child has been conceived. That's got to be technology that's brought out to people. And I used to hear in the past, well, we don't want to consider that because it just costs too much. Well, we just found out it's, it doesn't cost too much. It actually is ultimately going to save money. Yeah. And kind of piggybacking on that, people always talk about eugenics as a negative thing. And I totally agree that eugenics in the truest sense of trying to alter uh, genetic selection for certain traits is ethically problematic. But I think that this is one crystal clear example of where there is no good that comes on from passing down Huntington's disease. 100% of those who are affected are affected. They get the disease. It's devastating for the individual, for the family. These individuals have high suicide rates. It's, it's a horrible disease to live with. And I think a horrible disease to know for those individuals that carry the disease, to know that your life is going to end and it's not going to end beautifully or meaningfully in any way. Um, I think that this is a very crystal clear example of where PGT has great benefit. And while the cost analysis may only capture a fraction of the true impact, the, the cost impact, I would argue that the mental impact of knowing that you're not potentially passing down a disease, the ability to do non-disclosure PGT and rest assured that even if you end up with Huntington's, you are not going to be passing this down to your child. Like, I would argue that that's priceless. Kurt, as uh, we pivot from cost-effectiveness research back to your bread and butter, which appears to be machine learning every time we get together to talk about articles, um, tell us a little bit about this paper coming out looking at predicting optimal Dave trigger during stimulation. Sure. So this study is titled An Interpretable Machine Learning Model for Predicting the Optimal Day of Trigger During Ovarian Stimulation by a conglomerate of authors, of course. Um, this is a real team science. Uh, but the first author is Dr. Fanton uh, and senior author Dr. Lowick from a conglomeration in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Alfie Health Incorporated, as well as um, some institutions we know, like University of California in San Francisco, Reproductive Science Center in San Ramon, California, Boston IVF, and Reproductive Medical Associates in New York. So, yes, I have talked a lot about machine learning, and I think that this is one of the most logical applications for machine learning. I mean, there really is a dilemma here. We all know that triggering too early may not allow the oocytes to reach maturity, whereas triggering too late might result in post-mature oocytes, as well as an increased um, risk of OHSS. And we also know that this is a complex decision that affects every, you know, we, we do every day, and, and we, we obsess over this decision. So, um, I think that this is, might be an optimal use for AI because it checks off the following criteria. It's a complex decision. It encompasses interpreting multiple variables. And in our little computer mind, we weigh those variables differently. And that kind of continual weighting gets us to be sometimes subjective decision rather than object decision, objective decision. And therefore, perhaps the computer might be able to do it a little bit more 
fairly or objectively, and therefore we might end up with clinical outcomes. So we've reviewed papers on this already. So this is not the first paper to come up with an AI algorithm, but this one claims to be more interpretable. It claims that therefore the black box of the AI is therefore a little bit more in our own logic and intuition, and therefore perhaps is less likely to have the problems of AI, which I've talked about before, like overfitting or um, nonsensical findings. So this study, again, is interpretable machine learning. And what do they mean by that? So what they mean is they're using logistic regression in this format, as opposed to some of the other more complex regression models that a computer can use. It's still the same idea. What they're doing is they're predicting whether the um, trigger was better today or tomorrow. And it still has the same hypothesis that with the correct trigger, you can increase the number of mature eggs uh, and perhaps decrease OHSS. So more specifically, this study is looking at um, around 30,000 cycles from 2014 to 2020. It says it's from three centers. I can only assume it's the centers there. It doesn't specifically say which, which centers it came from. Uh, and the outcome is um, number of M2 oocytes with secondary outcomes, two PNs, and ultimately what is defined as usable blastocysts. So what they put in the model is what we think of. So that has baseline characteristics, BMI, previous IVF cycles, age, AMH, baseline E2, cycle length, but mostly it relies on what's the estrogen, how is it changing, and what are the size of the follicles. So well, really mathematically, what this regression did was predict what would be the number of M2s obtained um, if you waited till tomorrow. And it kept saying push till tomorrow until the prediction said, no, wait a minute, you might get less M2s than the day before. Now, remember, this is a prediction. They really didn't compare it to anything. Um, so you can't say whether the trigger was actually on the right day or the wrong day. You can just predict how many eggs there were. What's different about this study is one aspect I like is once it decided there were three groups, too early, right on time, or too late, they actually used propensity score adjustment to say that we could look only in those groups of people that are more alike. So it did take the idea of for lack of a better word, stratifying. In other words, they were trying to compare like people to like people, not just all people, because that is one of the problems with AI is it, it doesn't really tell you what to do in this particular case. It tells you what to do in the overall population. So I learned a lot from the study in terms of the statistics. Let me share a couple with you. First of all, the average trigger day was, drum roll please, 11.8 days. It also showed that, that on average, there should be about 4.5 monitoring visits. I don't think that's something new. Um, it also told us that, again, surprise, surprise, the most important factor in terms of when to predict was the size of the follicles. To be a little bit more specific, it said that the follicles that are 14 to 15 and 16 to 17 were probably the most predictive, and the shoulders were less predictive. The smaller follicles of less than 10 were not very predictive, and the follicles greater than 19 were not predictive. Unfortunately, they didn't break it down more than that. They didn't say greater than 20 or greater than 21 or greater than 22. So when you started comparing the early versus late, we realized that again, as a field, predict triggering too early seems to be the norm. Most of the time, AI said to push another day. So in reality, they're saying 48% of people were triggered, quote unquote, too soon, but only 13% were triggered, quote unquote, too late. However, the error was about the same or the consequence of the error. So the primary outcomes were if you triggered on the right day instead of too early, you got about 5.3 more eggs, about four more 2PN embryos, and about two more blasts. If you triggered late, you got fewer eggs and fewer 2PNs and about 2.9 less blasts. Now, that was the raw level. And like any study, they controlled for things and they did the propensity matching. So the real findings after controlling were less wow. So ultimately, if you trigger too early, you got an extra 2.3 eggs, about 1.8, two PNs and one blast. If you triggered too late, you actually got 0.7 or you lost 0.7 blasts. The other thing that I thought was neat in the study was they looked at regular prognosis versus poor responders. Again, something that's important because their, their goal was to trigger more than 15 eggs. I don't get 15 eggs on every one of my patients. So I'm, I'm curious on what happens in the low responding group. And the low responding group was actually similar. You could get one extra M2 
and you get somewhere between an extra 0.4 or 1.3 blasts if you trigger correctly. But in this case, it looks like the magnitude of correction was better if you didn't go too late, meaning that it was greater consequence if you over-simulated in those with quote-unquote lower response. I love it when the data supports what we've been hearing from some of our older attendings throughout the last three years of fellowship. I feel like it's been beat into my head that you never want to push a poor responder too far. You always want to err on the side of caution and trigger them sooner. And I think that last point that you raised, Kurt, about this subgroup analysis was was spot on. And it's nice to hear that it's actually validated what, they're, what they've been saying. Yeah, I don't know about that, though, because if you look at the article that we reviewed last month from Bruce Shapiro in Vegas, and admittedly, that study measured the follicles on the day of the retrieval, but they did not see a decrease in aneuploidy rates or unusable blast rates from those larger follicles. So one of the detriments or one of the criticisms of artificial intelligence is it's really modeling. It's not looking at actual outcomes. And that Shapiro study looked at the actual outcomes of what follicle by follicle, follicle size by follicle size, um, what was the result from aspiration from larger follicles? And they did not see a difference in aneuploidy rates in those um, oocytes that were retrieved from larger blastocysts. So I think it argues against that point. The problem with his paper then is those are patients who were of good enough prognosis to make it to retrieval and good enough prognosis to generate blasts available for biopsy. You're selecting a very select group of people at that point. I think it's possible with this data to extrapolate beyond these surrogate markers of maturity, fertilization, and blastulation and look at the next step. What happens when you actually transfer these embryos when you decided to push the trigger day by an extra day or shorten that trigger day by an extra day based on what the algorithm is telling you. And I think that's kind of the logical extension of this project, but that's much harder to do. Yeah, but I want to caution you both because you're already doing exactly what everyone does is they take this this finding as gospel and they start moving forward and extrapolating. And you guys brought up two really, really good points. The first one is it's, it's optimizing um, the number of eggs retrieved, it's not optimizing aneuploidy. Um, and we do know that getting an egg from both follicles that are large and small, you should still try to retrieve them. All you're trying to do is optimize the eggs. But what this study does not show you is that whether you've actually improved clinical outcomes here. And be careful. I want to summarize this. AI could be simply just verifying what we think we already know because we've already been acting on these follicles. This might just be telling us that what we're acting on is acting on what we think is the right variable. It could be that we could do better in another way. In other words, AI is just saying what we've been doing actually works and maybe the computer can do it more systematically or more objectively. So what's the right way to do this? Or what's the next step before we do go far? Remember, this study did not look at birth outcomes. Um, the way to do that is actually now um, a randomized trial where you use this algorithm in some people and you use standard of care as another. And then when you start seeing that you're truly getting more eggs or more pregnancies, then it's a benefit. Just by predicting you'll get more can only take you so far. Yeah, I think it's going to be really a helpful adjunct um, as we introduce, and I know we've talked about this on other episodes but as we introduce AI or machine learning into how we practice, I envision kind of a smart tool pop-up that um, populates the stimulation grid on the EMR saying like recommended trigger or you go to trigger and it pops up and it says, we recommend one more day and here's why. And so I think that maybe we will retrain our brains to practice a little bit differently with the adjunct use of machine learning. And I think the ultimate goal really is to have all ART decisions be automated in the future. Like I bet that's going to happen, um, maybe not in the next year to two years, but I think that that is absolutely on the horizon. And so I, I really commend this group on a job very well done. So look at the reflection in this paper, and let's have one other brief conversation about this. So again, I started that this is logical and intuitive, and it's it's lovely, a good feeling, because it taught us what we think we already know, right? But is it actually going to help? And by the way, I have to mention, although this was done properly, this is commercially supported, and this is probably going to be sold for a profit. So like everything else we do in IVF, is it worth the cost to purchase this? 
is it the right AI model or perhaps a different model should be? And then is there really a clinical benefit to adding more cost to IVF when in reality, you know, those differences are not really dramatic. And, you know, if we could just train our eyes to do better from the information in here. So again, it's a baby step. I love these papers. We're going to learn more, but we don't want to overly extrapolate this finding into all of a sudden I'm going to pay thousands of dollars to put it on my computer and play royalty as a company because they're the first one to have it published. And as a side, Kurt, I think you, you raise very good points. I just want to make sure that our listeners understand that um, I am on the scientific advisory board for the company that's putting out this work. But just because there's a conflict doesn't mean that the, the data is invalid, but something we want all of our listeners to be aware of. Exactly. And my, and my point was, I, I think this is good data. I hope that companies continue to publish the data and fertility and sterility, but I'm asking you as a listener to just be a little bit careful of how we use this or any other add-on. Just because it sounds intuitive doesn't mean it has to add cost. There really should be further studies like the so-called randomized trial for AI to make sure that it works before we start charging a lot for it. Works meaning clinical benefit, not just an extra egg or two. All right, now let's take a hard pivot from artificial intelligence to vitamin D, as if we haven't talked enough about vitamin D in the field of ART. So this month, there's a systematic review and meta-analysis by my friend Ari Kumaraswamy and his team at Tommy's National Center for Miscarriage Research that sought to investigate whether there's an association between vitamin D and the risk of miscarriage. I think all of us know that vitamin D gets a lot of attention in the field of women's health. Deficiency is pretty common globally, up to 75% of women in past are noted to be vitamin D deficient. But deficiency is also associated with badness in pregnancy, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, low birth weight, and maybe even subfertility in the ART population, which is why we talk about it so much. There is some biologic plausibility linking vitamin D with miscarriage. The vitamin D activating enzyme is expressed on maternal deciduous cells and the fetal trophoblast in early pregnancy. And it has been shown to exert some effects on trophoblast invasion, spiral artery remodeling, and even immune cell function. But probably the biggest reason why vitamin D gets so much hype in the field of women's health is that replacement is pretty easy and pretty safe. But the question is, does it matter in the setting of recurrent pregnancy loss? This group sought to organize a systematic review and meta-analysis to answer this question. Their search yielded 900 articles to review, of which only 10 were included in the final analysis, six which were association studies, and four interventional trials, including a total of 7,600 patients. They defined vitamin D deficient as less than 15 nanomoles per liter, vitamin D insufficient as 50 to 75, and vitamin D replete as greater than 75 nanomoles per liter. And their primary outcome was miscarriage. They had two main questions. Is vitamin D deficiency associated with miscarriage? In their meta-analysis, when comparing deficient women to women classified as replete, depletion was associated with a two-fold higher risk of miscarriage. And this remained true even when you group deplete and insufficient groups together. With regard to does vitamin D treatment reduce the risk of miscarriage, unfortunately, this is where things get complicated. Of the four RCTs that were included, all of them were so different from each other that it actually precluded them from analyzing this question. There are three RCTs that looked at high-risk women with a history of recurrent miscarriage, either planning pregnancy or already pregnant. Another RCT looked at low-risk pregnant women with no history of recurrent miscarriage. And even more worrisome, the interventions varied widely, from up to 300,000 intra-units of intramuscular vitamin D as repletion to as low as 400 international units orally. One of the RCTs even included an arm that received lymphocyte immunization therapy. So unfortunately, just too messy to draw any conclusions and to really address the question, does vitamin D reduce the risk of miscarriage? So we're left with the question, what do we do with this data? I think for me, think continue to be thoughtful about where you are in the world and where you're practicing and who you're treating. We know that certain latitudes have more of a problem with vitamin D deficiency. I think me, Kurt, and Eve all have patients who are certainly vitamin D deficient by nature of the long cold winters in Chicago, Philadelphia, and soon to be Boston for me. We also have to recognize that certain skin tones need more attention given the increased risk for vitamin D deficiency with darker tones. So these individuals are more reliant on diet to get their vitamin D supplementation. And I think really ultimately it comes down to replete vitamin D because it's good for overall health, not because you want to reduce the risk of miscarriage or improve someone's subfertility. I think the data suggesting vitamin D 
repletion in deficient patients is helpful is pretty strong. From a long-term health perspective, bone health, cardiovascular perspective, likely for an obstetric perspective, but I think the verdict is still out on whether or not it really moves the dial for the ART population. Kurt, Eve, you guys prescribing vitamin D much these days? It is something that we have discussed robustly within our practice. And I think that there is split opinion. Half of the camp believes that it's an easy, low-cost intervention. And while not proven, why not dot our I's and cross our T's and do something that may ultimately help improve IVF success and may ultimately improve bone health and metabolism. So why not? And I would say that the other half of the camp is until I see the data and until I'm convinced that there's a reason to prescribe it, I don't want to add in one more supplement or one more thing. And so that is that is the current state of affairs in my world. Kurt, where are you at? I feel like that pretty much sum, sums up everything we do in ART, doesn't it? Yeah, I was, I was kind of laughing in the background because, you know, supplements and add-ons are so easy in our field. And I mean, we've gone everything from scratching to growth hormone to all these other crazy ideas, or at least they, they seem logical at the time without evidence. Yet vitamin D, which is really low cost and probably could help people, we resist because we're not convinced it works yet. But our practice is the same way. I mean, I, I can't argue with this data. I'm not convinced it's going to be a huge public health impact, but I don't understand why we're not implementing it widely like we do screening TSHs. I agree. I think it's really easy, low-hanging fruit, and it probably has other health implications beyond fertility. So why not optimize? There are so many other things that we tell people to do. Um, so many other supplements that are in prenatal vitamins that people probably don't need. Whereas I almost wish that they would increase the vitamin D complement of a prenatal vitamin to 2000 IUs. I very much fall in the camp of take it. I think that it may have benefit and it certainly does not have harm. I don't want to be cynical, but I usually am. But I think one of the reasons is, is because it ends up to be busy work with unclear benefits and no one's getting paid for it. Truth. <laughs> <laughs> well said. All right. Taking a pivot away from vitamin D now to anti-malarian hormone and coronary artery risk development. Kurt, tell us about the findings from the Cardia study. Again, I'm glad I get a chance to discuss this article because I was really pleased to see this published in FNS. So sit back and let the science pour over you. This isn't going to affect your everyday care at the moment, but this is something you all should know. So this study is anti-malarian hormone and leukocyte aging markers in the coronary artery risk development in young adults, or the acronym CARDIA study. And the running title is AMH and leukocyte aging markers. By a strong group of authors, Dr. Catherine Kim is the first author um, from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the senior author, Melissa Wellens, um, out of Nashville, Tennessee. So we all, I think, remember back to our training about the importance of menopause um, and how um, really the age of menopause has been relatively unchanged, but we have a lot more years or longevity beyond menopause. But menopause does have some significant effects on life. Um, again, going back to our general health, we understand that after a woman goes through menopause, there is really a change in cardiovascular disease, bone health, sexuality, and, men, and even dementia. So if we could predict menopause, then we literally could be predicting longevity. So this whole, like, this whole study is basically saying, do we have the correct biomarkers to predict menopause or indirectly, therefore, to predict the other consequences of aging. So this study, again, uses an NIH-sponsored study started in 1985, the CARDIA study, where that looks at a large number of women. This study enrolls more than 5,000 individuals starting in 1985 and 1986 and more than um, 2,800 women and follows them at 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25 years. And AMH was added to this study collected in the early 2000s, I think 2002, 2004, and then eventually run, the AMH was run now. So you can use this predictor when women were about 40 in this cohort. And now we can start look at other markers of aging. So what are those other markers of aging? So there's a real rich literature on some, I'm not sure if they're biomarkers or mechanistic aspects, but 
a lot of people are now looking at leukocyte telomere length, the idea being that telomeres will shorten with age, and you can measure that now relatively routinely. And premature shortening of a telomere has been a harbinger for many diseases, including cardiovascular disease and cancers. Others are looking at mitochondrial DNA, the idea being that the DNA in the mitochondria um, copy number decreases, perhaps cells have less quote-unquote power or metabolism, and that also is a marker for aging. And finally, I think the most intriguing one and perhaps the least known is something called the epigenetic clock, which is basically a methylation pattern that is relatively predictable that happens to your DNA, obviously post-gametogenesis, and, and you can actually look at someone's DNA and look at the pattern of methylation and say how far they are, are in this clock. In other words, does your epigenetic clock match your chronologic age? And if it doesn't, that is also a harbinger for many diseases. So the whole premise of this study is, can we use a simple biomarker like AMH, and does it correlate with these other more, for lack of a better word, scientific plausibility markers? So the answer is, unfortunately, not. So the question is, why am I talking so much about a negative study? But I think it really is important to understand that this work is going on and what it can do. So let me go through this just a little bit with you. So we're looking at basically AMH levels and are they correlated to um, these markers I just mentioned some 15 years later. And after adjustment for chronologic age, race, smoking, AMH, looking at quartiles of AMH, unfortunately, it just didn't seem to be the correlation that we were hoping for. Now, you can look at this paper, and I hope you will, and there are a couple associations they found. It's hard to know if they're spurious. It's hard to know if they're statistical accidents, or it's hard to know if we just don't quite understand the mechanisms yet. But unfortunately, this didn't give us that robust answer that we wanted. So when you get a negative study like this, you worry a little bit about, do I have the right marker? Did I measure it the right way? And we can poke holes in this, and many will. The AMH is not the standard assay that we use now. Uh, it's perhaps that the, some of these um, very fancy assays that are being predict that are being used now in terms of leukocyte uh, telomere length are not as specific as we want. Maybe we should be looking at um, granulosa cell telomeres instead of leukocyte telomeres. There are a lot of explanations like this. So I'm sure the science will go forward and we will continue. And I'm not saying the negative study is putting this um, to bed, so to speak. Now, if you really want to become smart, you should read the reflection by um, Kara Goldman, who really summarizes this topic well. She does a tremendous job pointing out that this is the holy grail of research if we can come up with a biomarker that predicts menopause and therefore allows us to predict longevity. Um, Maybe we're not there yet. Now, her work on mTOR, which is a compound that um, maintains the primordial follicle pool, may still be, and I still believe is one of the best hypotheses I've heard of that we could prevent premature aging in two ways. It might prevent premature aging, but it also might prevent DOR. So I, uh, as I mentioned on a podcast with Malcolm Gladwell, I find her hypothesis to be really intriguing but still, unfortunately, a little bit preliminary because we just haven't figured out how to manage or change or modify the mTOR, the, 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 the follicular pool. So if you want to be smart at a cocktail party, read this article, pimp your friends. There's a lot more to reproductive medicine than simply IVF. This will remind you how important the follicular pool is to health. The so-called canary in the coal mine theory, which I agree with, is still a very plausible scenario. And we might ultimately be able to find such a harbinger for disease later in life of these women we're taking care of now. Unfortunately, this paper suggests that maybe not AMH is not that marker, but it doesn't mean we should stop trying. And it doesn't take away the fantastic science by, by Cara, as well as the people in the cardia study. Yeah, Kurt is always so well said. And I just can't imagine that there is not a link between ovarian aging and aging in the rest of the body. I, I do feel like maybe AMH is not the right marker, but there just has to be something else that we haven't yet discovered or we haven't yet been able to measure that is going to be the link that ties the two together. I think there's enough compelling data on women who have primary ovarian insufficiency about other other health issues that arise. It, it intuitively just makes sense. And I think that ultimately we will uncover it. I'm confident we will too. I, I, really, I really think that 
that's the value of a negative study like this. I think it makes it brings us to the forefront, and I hope that it inspires us to do more research, not the opposite. You know, I wasn't surprised that AMH didn't track with uh, telomere length, but it tracked with chronologic age. I think there's so many things that we know in our practice that impact AMH levels. Presence of an endometriosis or an endometrioma. There are autoimmune conditions that can can decrease women's AMHs far greater than what their chronic logic age suggests it should be decreased. So I think it's a it's a helpful surrogate marker for stimulation and counseling. But beyond that, I think it quickly loses its utility. And I agree with you. I think Kara's um, mTOR hypothesis is fascinating, and I think there's so much work being done in aging right now that hopefully we'll see some of the benefits of it trickle down into reproductive medicine and helping us understand ovarian biology just a little bit better. Wishful thinking. So, so admittedly, after I read this, I went down a whole rabbit hole of commercial tests for um, biological age, just to look and see what is out there in terms of learning your own biological age compared to your chronological age. And I must admit, I'm, I'm very curious. Although there's not markers, and I would be careful of, of buying one or searching the internet and being taken advantage of this, that doesn't mean I don't believe it. I really do think you can look at somebody, and maybe we need uh, AI to help us here. You can look at somebody and say that person just looks older than their stated age, and well, that no, person looks was, younger. You know, there was this study <laughs> that was published, and I believe it was published in FNS, where they used. AI to look at photographs of, of women's faces to see whether or not the photographic evidence of aging correlated with the AMH levels. And they actually did not show benefit. I don't remember when it was published or by whom, but that study really struck a, a chord. I do sometimes think when I'm seeing patients, um, and it's often, I think, the smokers who have more evidence of aging in the skin, like I do, and we're going to talk about smoking and fertility later on in this podcast. But I do sometimes think in the back of my mind, like I bet she has a low AMH and a high FSH. And often I'm correct. And so both the paper that we're going to talk about in a little bit, as well as these data were really surprising to me. But I also will tell you that the rabbit hole of home um, telomere testing and home methylation testing, the cost was a deterrent. It was anywhere from $600 to $1,500. And so I was like, mm, I don't think there's enough data to justify this, but I am quite curious. Yeah, and I'll share with an anecdote as well. 20 years ago or so when I was, was started the third-party production at Penn, there was a woman that wanted to um, use donor eggs. And I looked at her and said, you are not 55 years old. And she swears that she was. And the only thing I had to do, I didn't have any tests for telomere lengths or um, chronological age at this point. So I just kind of dragged my feet and just, we never got her donor eggs. And about a year later, she ended up having a stroke. So I was like, you know, sometimes your intuition works, but I would prefer that we had some sort of objective test eventually and not just relying on my intuition. Kara, if you're listening, we're counting on you. <laughs> Absolutely, Kara. Keep it up. Well, let's take a pivot now and talk about fertility preservation. I think, Eve, you have a paper coming out of the group at NYU. This next paper is 15 years of autologous oocyte thaw outcomes from a large university-based fertility center with first author Sarah Cascante and senior author Jamie Griffo from NYU. I also think this is a great study and will be a terrific counseling tool. This is a retrospective cohort study of patients who underwent one or more autologous oocyte saw cycles at NYU after undergoing planned oocyte cryopreservation cycles. Only patients who underwent planned OC cycles were included, and patients who underwent oocyte VIP for medical indications or due to unexpected lack of sperm on retrieval day were not included. The primary outcome that they looked at was final live birth per patient, so cumulative likelihood of success, and only patients who had a live birth or used all available oocytes were included in the analysis. The secondary outcomes were laboratory outcomes and live birth per transfer. Of note in this program, between 2004 and 2015, they froze both M1s and M2s. And then after 2015, M1s were only cryopreserved if fewer than, M2, if fewer than 15 M2s were retrieved. 
Upon OSI thaw, ICSI was used for fertilization in all cases. Patients then either underwent embryo culture direct to transfer at either day three or day five, so kind of like a fresh transfer from frozen eggs, or they underwent culture to blastocyst stage with either biopsy for PGT with freezing or freezing untested blasts. PGT was with a raised CGH or next-gen sequencing, depending on the year of warming. Frozen embryo transfer was performed using either a programmed natural or modified natural cycle, and they had 543 patients that met these strict inclusion criteria. These 543 patients underwent a total of 800 planned OC cycles and 605 oocyte thaws and 436 embryo transfer cycles. So the majority of them underwent one with a few patients having undergone two. This is where I really want to highlight my own bias. Median age at first OC cycle was 38.3 and only 8% of patients were less than 35 years old. So hold on to that nugget of age. The median time between the first OC cycle and first warming cycle was 4.2 years, and the longest time was 12.6 years. So most patients returned at about 42, 43 to use their eggs. The median number of oocytes warmed or thawed was 12, with survival of 79% and 66% fertilization rate. In total, 25% of thawed M2s led to a usable blast. For those patients that froze M1s, 3% led to a usable blast. And from their entire cohort of all patients, there was only one live birth from one patient that froze an M1. 15% of thaws had no usable embryos, and 36% had no euploid or untested embryos that made it to blast. And this was much more likely in patients who froze at age 41 and older, which really calls into question what age should be the upper age limit of planned OC cycles. Among patients who were doing PGT, 46% had no euploid embryos. Among all patients who had embryos for transfer, the implantation rate, spontaneous abortion rate, and live birth rate was similar to IVF outcomes at that age, but you have to note that there were a high proportion of patients that simply did not have an embryo for transfer. And so once you made it to embryo transfer, your success rates were similar to age-matched patients. I really commend the authors for their great work in both planned OC as well as reporting outcomes for warming cycles. And I think there are two main points that this paper brings up. First, what is the best strategy when a patient returns for warming? And this is something I really struggle with in my own practice. Should we be warming and going straight to transfer? Or should we be growing a blast and doing PGT? Though the live birth rates were similar to age expected, there were really high numbers of patients in these warming cycles whose embryos arrested prior to blastocyst stage, about 30%. And so is it possible that some of these embryos could have progressed to live birth if transferred at cleavage stage, morula, or early blast rather than pushing to blastocyst stage? Overall, 75% of the eggs warmed did not become a usable blast because of embryo arrest or aneuploidy. So I think that's a really important question that we all face is what do we do when these patients return? And that kind of brings me back to my nugget I left you with earlier is age. We're being forced to make this decision on fresh transfer versus PGT because we're freezing eggs at age 38. Um, this is a population of older patients who froze eggs. And my own bias, and for those of you who know me and my own research, is that planned oocyte cryopreservation should be offered to younger patients to capture better success rates. When patients freeze at a younger age, they have higher number of eggs retrieved, higher live birth rates. Of course, it has to be balanced with cost, but I'm hoping that in the near future, my own data will be published and we can duke it out on a future podcast episode. But I really think that we're missing the mark by freezing eggs at 38. We're creating a whole other set of challenges with regard to what do we do? Whereas if we freeze at a younger age, we're not going to have to worry about PGT and um, we'll have better outcomes. I can't emphasize that enough. If you're going to freeze your eggs, I would prefer the least amount of technology necessary. Just because you make a decision to freeze eggs for whatever reasons you make doesn't mean you've not bought 
egg freezing PGTA tailor-made length evaluation um, and Botox. So I, you know, let's simplify this decision and have one technology. I was struck by the attrition. How how few embryos were useful and available for for some of these patients, and maybe certainly some of that is just as the technology advanced during this time period. You we got better the later these eggs were frozen in time, certainly during the vitrification era and single-step media. But still, that number is, is so high in my mind and certainly, I think, helpful from a counseling perspective to tell patients that you really do need a lot of eggs up front frozen, especially if you're freezing them around the age of 38 for, the, for you to have a meaningful chance at having a baby at the end of all of this. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that some of the calculators that are out there are overly optimistic with regard to number of eggs needed. So not to keep harping on my same point, but really if you freeze at a younger age, you get more eggs in a single retrieval cycle with a higher likelihood of success. And so I think it's a win-win. Let's take a hard pivot from egg freezing to smoking. I know Eve had alluded to this earlier, but we do have a great paper in this month's um, FNS that looks at the issue of smoking and infertility. Um, I think we all know that smoking is bad, and we've known this data since at least the early 80s. We know that smoking increases the odds of infertility in a dose-dependent fashion, probably through multiple different ways. Follicular depletion, impairment of ciliary function, increases the risk of miscarriage, obstetric badness, and it's probably also impacting sperm quality and quantity. But the problem is that most of these studies are small single center, retrospective, and have tons of residual confounding. Even when we do our best to account for exposures, partner habits, lifestyle choices, diet. So we've always kind of stopped short of a causality statement between smoking and infertility, although we all kind of feel and suspect that there probably is a causal link. Well, one of the interesting ways to assess for causality is via this technique called Mendelian randomization, which uses genetic variants that are linked to an exposure, like having smoked, to assess the unconfounded effect of this exposure with certain outcomes, in our case, infertility. And there are two nuanced ways to do this. One is single sample Mendelian randomization, where exposure, outcome, and the genetic variants are all measured in the same population. And then there's two sample Mendelian randomization, where the association between the genetic variant and the exposure is assessed in one population, and the association between the genetic variant and the outcome is assessed in a second population. And you can, of course, also do your bread and butter multivariable logistic regression and check to see if your conclusions in these three different analyses agree with each other. And that's just what these authors did. So Hernandez and colleagues did in this article entitled Smoking and Infertility, Multivariable Regression and Mendelian Randomization Analysis in the Norwegian Mother, Father, and Child Cohort Study. And for those who are unfamiliar, they use data from this large Norwegian-based population cohort that was started in the early 2000s in Norway that now includes over 115,000 children, nearly 100,000 mothers, and 75,000 fathers. And for all of these patients, they had collected smoking habits via survey. And they also had blood from parents that was collected during pregnancy that was available for genotyping. And they utilized the data from genomic-wide association studies to evaluate for SNPs, SNPs that had been previously associated for and linked to smoking initiation, smoking heaviness, and smoking cessation. And what they did with this data was they evaluated causal relationships between male and female smoking initiation, intensity, and cessation on infertility using these Mendelian randomization techniques. Their final cohort consisted of nearly 28,000 women and 27,000 men for which they had full genotyping information available. Of these, 10% had a diagnosis of infertility and 5% underwent ART treatment. Some fun facts about the Norwegians and their smoking habits. About 50% of men and women were smokers, and this was evenly distributed in the fertile and infertile groups. Most started smoking in their late teens, 17, and on average, women smoked about 40 cigarettes per week whereas men smoked nearly double, almost 70 cigarettes per week. I've never smoked a cigarette, but that sounds like a full-time job. So what did they find? So they found that having ever smoked was unrelated to infertility in men and women across all three different analyses that they performed, drawing into question our causal assumption, is smoking truly related to infertility? Smoking heaviness, however, was linked to greater odds of infertility in both sexes in the multivariable analysis. But these relationships were attenuated after they adjusted for the things that may introduce confounding, lifestyle, 
occupation, the partner's smoking habits and intensity. And these results differed when you looked at them in daily and randomization, meaning there was some conflict there. They did not all agree with each other. And finally, smoking cessation was, as we suspected, related to lower odds of infertility in the multivariable regression. But again, this did not agree with the Mendelian randomization when they looked at specific SNPs from genome-wide association studies that had been linked to this cause and effect. So in summary, they didn't find robust evidence of an effect of smoking on infertility, but there's a bunch of reasons why this could be true. The effect doesn't exist. That's one. There's weak genetic data from these genome-wide association studies. And as a, a point that I'll raise here, these GWAS studies are largely done in white Northern European cohorts. So you really have to apply these GWAS data to white European cohorts for them to be meaningful. And luckily they did here because this was a Norwegian cohort. And then finally, this data applies only to Norwegian men and women who are able to get pregnant and participated in this mother-baby cohort registry. This was not a group of people who were infertile and unable to become pregnant. This was fertile women who delivered singletons in Norway. So again, I think like the other study on vitamin D, this doesn't change our views on smoking counseling. I think all of us agree that smoking cessation or never smoking is good from a mortality perspective, cardiovascular risk profile, cancer, osteoporosis, diabetes, and there's a preponderance of data to suggest that it improves birth outcomes. But I think the question still remains, despite a ton of circumstantial evidence, does smoking in and of itself cause infertility? I think the verdict is still out, but I think we all kind of have our, our suspicions on what we think. Kurt, Eve, I can't imagine that you're not recommending anyone stop smoking if they're coming to see you. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think, again, it's one of those situations where we may not understand the exact mechanism, but I just can't think that it's good. In the same way that we have some endocrine disruptors that may be subtly altering meiosis in the oocyte, things like plastics, phthalates, all of those. There's just nothing good that comes of smoking a cigarette. I agree. This is one of those things where it hasn't been proven that it affects fertility, but it affects so many other health things that why would we not recommend stopping smoking? Kurt, I have to imagine your ectopic pregnancy brain is firing off signals here when you hear smoking, fertility, and you're thinking about that poor tube and the ectopic risk. I feel like to me, this is one of the, the most strongly correlated relationships is what smoking does to tubal cilia and how it increases your, your ectopic risk. Yeah, agreed. But I always hear people, again, academically pimping me that the only benefit demonstrated with smoking is a reduction in endometrial cancer. So <laughs> there are still things that are counterintuitive here, but believe me, I'm not suggesting anybody should smoke. Stop it. Well, that's all we have for this month. Thanks again for joining and listening. We're hoping to be back again next month potentially with our co-host, Dr. Micah Hill, but if not, we'll continue to save a warm seat for him. You know, the conversation continues beyond the podcast. You can make sure to listen to the FNS Unplugged episode that are released monthly as we highlight one article from the sister journals, FNS Reports, Science, and Reviews. As always, there's journal clubs that we host every month. You can find a full schedule of those on the ASRM website. And finally, if you're not already following us, please Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, where you can continue to see all of the good work that our authors are doing as we share them with you. I would also mention that we love our feedback. So if you guys here you know, want to drop us a line on any of those ways you can, we'd love to make this podcast better and uh, talk about what you want to hear. I was just going to put a plug in. We're going to have an extra episode in the month of July um, looking at ESHRA and lots of science that's presented at that meeting. So tune in and more to come. You've heard of the best of ESHRA and ASRM meeting. This will be the best of Eve at ESHRA podcast. And Kurt. <laughs> That's and less it. important. Right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next month. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. 
While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.